0: One of our favorite topics that we have talked about multiple times on this podcast, although never with the kind of depth that we're going to talk about today, I hope, is the story of the Haitian independence debt of 1825. And today... We're so thrilled that we have as our guest, the person whose work inspired us to talk about and investigate this question and particularly the legal and financial aspects of this question. And that is my colleague at the University of Virginia. Although when we started, I did not know we would both be at the same university. It's Marlena Dowd of the History Department and the Caribbean Studies Department of the University of Virginia. So I wanna start out first by welcoming Marlena and then by putting out a first question of sort of how you became interested in this really obscure topic about sovereign debt, because my impression is that you are not otherwise a sovereign debt scholar. You are primarily a historian. So welcome, Marlena. And uh, I was hoping you could tell us sort of an origin story of your interest in this fascinating topic.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me um, here. And um, yes, I'm not a scholar of sovereign debt. I am a scholar of Haitian history and literature, cultural studies, and the Caribbean more broadly. But how I became interested in this topic was really through delving quite deeply into the history of the Haitian Revolution, um, but then also into 19th century Haitian history. So of course, Haiti gains its independence through a 13 year long struggle uh, fought against France um, in 1804. But that's not really where the story ends. But I found that um, in a lot of my studies, That was where the story ended for a lot of people. Uh, Well, you know, Haiti got its independence in 1804 and became the first uh, Black nation, independent Black nation of the Western Hemisphere and the first nation to permanently abolish slavery. And and all of those things were true. Uh, But Haiti paid a very severe price. Um, In fact, the independence debt to which uh, we're referring is called just that, that this is kind of a tax, uh, so to speak, um, for the price of. Their, of their freedom. And, um, and as I delved more deeply into what we call the 1825 indemnity, um, which is how Haiti gained formal recognition from France was by agreeing to pay 150 million francs to the French crown um, for the quote unquote loss of their property, including enslaved Africans uh, that the French colonists had had in their uh, holdings. Um, I learned that the debt, you know, it wasn't just they agreed to the debt in 1825, okay, the debt was reduced in 1838 to 90 million francs total, Um, but then they were forced to take out all these draconian loans, and there were interests, and the story became more and more complex and brought me into the 20th century as primarily a scholar of 18th and 19th century studies, Um, and you can really see by following the Haitian case the ricocheting consequences of debt, um, that once you get into a debt cycle, it's very, very difficult to get out of it. And so following that story um, seemed logical to me as a person interested also um, in contemporary Haitian politics and and uh, current events. So
2: Marlena, if I can um, ask a bit of background to the, the indemnity itself. So um, my understanding is that not long after the official declaration of independence, the country is sort of split into two with Alexandre Pétion in, in the South, I guess, and Henri Christophe in the North. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about them as compared to uh, Boyer, the, 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 the leader that followed after a unification, I gather. And, and the subtext for my question is that for reasons that are maybe not very good, some of the legal questions that come up ask us to think about the quality of rule at the time the, the indemnity was imposed. And I confess, I just I, I don't know a great deal about the, the, the sort of context there. And I'm wondering if you can if you can give us a little bit of it.
1: Sure. I mean, actually, the the story starts a bit earlier than, than Christophe and Alexandre Pétion with um, a man named Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who is considered the founder of Haitian independence. And so even though it's quite common to say, um, to find written, you know, Haiti was the first black republic. Um, actually, Dessalines created an empire and he w- he became the emperor Jacques I, the emperor of Haiti. Um, but he was assassinated by political rivals in October of 1806. And it's this assassination that actually leads to a civil war in Haiti that splits the North and the South. And so you had Henri Christophe eventually ruling in the North as King and Pétion ruling in the South as president over what then became uh, the Republic of Haiti at the time. And so in styling himself as a president, you know, he creates these kinds of counselors of state and a Senate Um, and sort of all the trappings of things that we associate with democracy. But the republic that he built was much more closely related to how the French Republic was maintained at the time. Each um, sort of delegate or senator, if you will, from a certain region, they voted on behalf of their populace. So it wasn't a popular vote. So Pétion is elected to the presidency in 1807 officially, but it isn't a popular vote. It's the vote of these senators and delegates from particular regions. Um, Only Christophe, in contrast, in making himself a king, um, he first makes himself a president over the earth and the seas, as he calls it, um, until 1811, uh, when he's crowned king, and so, He has a constitution, there are all these laws, so it is a constitutional monarchy. Um, He wants to model it after the British monarchy, he says, but there are also certain vestiges of French monarchy kind of folded into it. And so on the island itself, you kind of have this laboratory for different political experiments at the time in governments. Um, Because not only do you have a republic in the south, a kingdom in the north, but on the eastern side of the island that is today the Dominican Republic, you also still have a colony because initially France hangs on to that side until 1809 about, and then Spain recovers it and has a colony uh, there up until the moment when uh, Jean-Pierre Boyer uh, comes to power and is essentially able to reunify all of Haiti. And so from uh, 1822 until 1843, actually the entire island is the Republic of Haiti. Um, This is important for understanding the indemnity because after 1822, Boyer can then, as president, turn his sights to what's the real prize he wants, which is recognition from all the foreign powers, Great Britain, Spain, Russia, Germany, um, the PIBA. He wants recognition and from the United States in particular, as well as a close neighbor, um, but knows that he can't get recognition for Haiti unless France first recognizes that there is a Haiti and stops referring to the colony as Saint-Domingue to its people as their rebels and the quote-unquote runaway or fugitive slaves as you would find in official French documents of the time. And so that was really kind of his motivation for pursuing these different delegations and this was very different from what was happening under Pétion and Christophe. Christophe wouldn't have any conversation with the French that didn't begin at the outset with, we recognize you as sovereign and independent, and especially since the French kept referring to him as General Christophe, which was the title he held under French colonialism when he, in fact, was a general uh, in the French army. Um, Pétion was open to conversations but a lot of the conversations around the time period that, that Pétion was sort of exploring different options for French recognition, which is to say about 1814 to 1816, were really about, well, we'll give you kind of a golden parachute out of here when we bring back slavery. So the French were not actually ready to be done with the idea that they could retake the island and they essentially wanted Pétion to be kind of a junior partner in that and once he figured that out or came to that realization um, he realized that he couldn't really negotiate uh, even no matter how much money he offered them and he did offer money that that wasn't actually what the French sought at that time they still have this kind of delusion that they could quote-unquote restore Saint-Domingue which was the language they used.
0: So what happens? so in in some of the critiques that Mark and I have received for our work on the Haitian independence debt, uh, when we talk about the fact that Boyer incurred the debt under significant amount of duress, uh, the concern about France wanting to re-enslave Haiti and its population and the gunboats that were sitting in the harbor. One of the responses slash critiques that we get is that, look, Boyer was, uh, you know, this representative of all of the island and voluntarily negotiated a deal with France for this amount, 150 million francs, in exchange for something that greatly benefited Haiti. And so this was just a commercial transaction. France got, you know, favorable trade status, uh, plus a lot of money in exchange they gave Haiti this recognition that nobody else was willing to give them and now you guys are just trying to undo the deal that was done 200 years ago and that's that's just not fair now that my impression uh, from your work is that's a dramatic oversimplification to say that uh, Boyer, either was this lovely representative democratic uh, icon who was negotiating a sort of freely entered into contract.
1: Yes, I would say. I mean, so there's a few, th- there's a lot of things. Um, you know, I really like the way you laid that out because I think it really captures a huge part of the debate, which is well, if the Haitian government agrees to this indemnity, then who are we to say that France owes, that there's this debt that France owes to Haiti uh, so many years later. But let us, aside from the gunboat diplomacy as it's been called, which is is definitely real and is a huge factor. Um, in fact, the diplomat who came to Haiti with the document in 1825, a man named Baron de Macot, um, in his journals and his recitation of the event, talks about how you know we'll eliminate them, we'll destroy them. So the idea that like oh they weren't really going to bring war, so there was nothing to really be afraid of is not true. Um, and and even so, how would Boyer know whether or not it was a ruse or a bluff? Um, but but even if we say he he agreed to this. We have to consider that he agreed to this as essentially a single individual on behalf of an entire nation. And even if we put the senate, the senators and the delegations back in who were part of his government, the vast majority of the Haitian people did not agree to this debt. And uh, you know, one of 19th century Haiti's most prominent intellectuals under Christophe, you know, he says this thing in one of his histories. He says, you know, it is always the people who pay when their leaders make mistakes. They pay for their mistakes with their tears, their lives, and their livelihoods. And I think that's really true in this case because even at the time Haitians protested what Boyer was doing. And in fact, there was a faction in the Southern part of the country that said, Boyer may have agreed, these were former generals of the revolution actually, um, he may have agreed to pay this But we didn't agree to it, so what would compel us to agree to it? And later, when there's an earthquake, a big earthquake in May 1842, it's estimated to be like a magnitude 8 if they had a Richter scale at the time, and it had this huge tsunami, so much death and destruction, um, that it was Boyer's sort of handling of that crisis or mishandling of that crisis in the north in Cap-Haïtien, coupled with the fact that the Haitian people were essentially being crushed under the weight of this death, debt. Debt. Um, the farmers, in particular, in the countryside. Another Haitian intellectual from the later nineteenth century, Antonin Firmin, he talked about how while farmers in Europe were busy modernizing, so to speak, and m- um, mechanizing the production of agricultural goods, that Haitians were still using, you know, um, materials and tools from the 18th century, because they couldn't afford, they paid so much draconian taxes to the state, they couldn't afford to engage in this process of modernization that would have made you know, importing and, uh, or exporting rather so much easier. So it would have enabled them to produce more. Um, and in the schools, um, the other scholars have talked about how Haitian school children were told to recite these sort of, you know, oath statements, like we're gonna pay our taxes. We're gonna do all of these things. This is the price of independence. And this is what it means to be independent. So it is clear that Boyer made mistakes that the Haitian people have to pay for, but it is also clear that he did make those mistakes under duress and that regardless, he didn't actually uh, to a certain extent have the, have the authority to um, put these kinds of chains of debt, if you will, on the future inhabitants of the society because of course we know he, there are all these loans that are taken out and then those loans have to be paid back. And those loans are paid back often in situations of duress. When the Haitian government defaults, um, that's what occasions the next delegation in 1838 to come under a separate French king and, and renegotiate the terms of the quote unquote settlement or the agreement. So Marlena,
0: one of the questions that comes up with students, when we tell the story in our sovereign debt class, especially given that the students have been exposed to other instances in history where very unfair debts were imposed by colonial oppressors. So, I mean, one of the classic cases is the situation in China in the early to mid-1900s, the imperial debt that post-revolution China refuses to pay. One can think of the czarist debt that after the czar is overthrown, the new government in Russia refuses to pay. And those are both debts, sets of enormous sets of debts that still to this day are not paid. Now, what is different about the Haitian story for us without really having a deep understanding of what happened in Haiti is that Haiti continues to pay. Uh, you know, the story you told about the schoolchildren being indoctrinated into their obligation to pay these debts. I've heard stories from Haitian friends about, from their grandparents, about songs that had to be, that people would sing about this, the debts. What was going on in Haiti that they didn't you know, two years later, turn around and tell the French, uh, you know, screw you, we're not paying this. Like, this is completely ridiculous. Why didn't that happen? Is this a story of continuing colonialism that Haiti never had the option to say no? Or is it just that the Haitians were so committed to the rule of law that they wanted to pay when nobody, nobody else would have paid a debt like this?
1: I mean, it's, it's a great question because there's, it's in with a really complex answer, um, I would say, because there are so many layers there. Um, yes, the songs that is, those are absolutely stories that are told and passed down that there were songs about paying this debt, um, but it was, c- it continued to be in a situation of duress because Haiti had very powerful neighbors. initially they have Great Britain, that is not going to recognize their independence until slavery is fully abolished um, in Great Britain. So actually in 1838 about because They want to, you know, they had all of these rules about how long the person, you know, had to be an indentured servant or whatever to to then claim their freedom. So 1833 and then 1834, but it actually doesn't go into full effect until later. So they wait until that process is complete. But they also have the PIBA, they have the United States, they have Spain, and they have Portugal and then also Brazil. So powerful, powerful neighbors trying to exclude them from the seat at the table. The the Congress of Panama um, is a a famous example of Haiti being excluded. And so part of it is if we do things that are respected from the government's perspective by the nations of the world, that is pay our debts, um, then we will be respected. So that's, that's what you do. So there's this pressure. The other pressure is also the threat of invasion. It's not just, okay, we want recognition from these other countries, want them to recognize our humanity, which is all folded into the Haitian independence movement as it continues um, to to go through its cycles of trying to gather recognition from various entities, including the Holy See. Um, And so the threat of, of invasion on top of that, because especially initially, Boyer fought in the Haitian Revolution, Nearly all of the people who were prominent in his government at first did so as well. And they have this memory. And, you know, Jus Chanlot, who was around at the time of the revolution, though his status of whether he fought in it or not is, is under question, um, he said, you know, he was there during the Leclerc expedition. And he said, if you had seen that deboned chest, you had seen those bloody tatters in the street, you know, how long would it take you to forget? And so the idea that, we have Spain on the other side because after the Reconquista and then eventually Dominican independence, um, you know, are they going to try to bring back slavery? Uh, If we upset the nations of the world, will they invade us? Uh, The United States was poking around the port of Molson Nicola a lot in the 19th century and even into the late 19th century after slavery was abolished in the United States. Um, And so the threat of being taken over was real. And when we see the long history, if we take a long 19th century viewpoint, that the 1915 uh, beginning of the US occupation of Haiti is directly related to the debts that we're talking about. So it was not paranoia as the late Paul Farmer you know, said, Haitians are not paranoid in the uses of Haiti. Uh, his great book on that, this topic and the other ones as well. Um, They're not being paranoid because it happened over and over and over again in the 19th century. The threat was real. Uh, There were, the United States was also looking around at the Bay of Samana on the other side of the island. They knew very distinctly that Haiti was going for Cuba, that maybe it was going to go for Puerto Rico and then eventually did. Um, And so if we, if we take out the question of necessarily, you know, is it just that their civic duty is so strong, the, the Haitian people and the Haitian government, um, and put it back into the frame of the precarity of Haitian independence, the fragility of this thing that Haitians are so proud of, proclaiming themselves independent. Uh, fighting for it themselves, the Haitian historian Alfred Nemours says no one gave Haitians their independence. They fought it, they won it, they took it, um, and the idea that it could somehow, because they're a small island and not, not a rich island, that it could somehow be taken away, I think, has to, and, and was passed down as intergenerational trauma over and over again because we see all these writers saying Louis-Joseph Janvier, all these writers into the 19th century saying, beware of the United States, de Vardelon, don't be seduced by the United States. So it continues. And, and I think that's what we see today as well. The threat of being invaded puts all kinds of pressures uh, on, on governments and people.
2: Well, let's take a short break, and then when we come back, Marlena, I'm hoping we can get you to talk a little bit more about the that longer history leading up to the U.S. invasion in 1915. But let's, uh, let's take a short break. So, Marlena, can you draw a through line for us, if you can, or maybe there are multiple through lines from the independence debt sort of created as an indemnity owed to the French and then quickly transformed into these financial obligations to French banks. But then by the early part of the 20th century is now an obligation that's been refinanced and is owed to U.S. banks. And and I think National Citibank in in particular played a key role here. So I'm wondering if you can just give us a, a sense of the how the United States fits into this broader equation.
1: Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, what have you laid that out really well in the sense that um, the United States kind of, the debts get repackaged um, to a certain extent and the United States kind of, um, assumes them, if you will, or takes responsibility over them. And part of the the U.S. occupation that I mentioned that lasted from 1915 to 1934, the, the pretext for that was the assassination um, of a Haitian president or one who had fled office rather and sought refuge in the in the French embassy at the time um, and was dragged out. And, and you know, it was a horrific murder in the streets. But when we think about how the United States had already experienced several assassinations of prior presidents, more than Haiti had at the time, um, we see that that was just a pretext uh, because the missives back and forth between uh, U.S. officials and French officials and also Haitian officials is, is all about they're talking about money that has to be repaid. They're talking about debt. They're talking about interest. And yes, um, National Citibank is the one that sort of repackages it. Uh, the famous story is that all the gold stores, uh, Haitian gold stores amounting to the estimates about 500,000, but I've seen some estimates that are higher, uh, gets impounded, all Haitian government res- uh, revenue. And so any story about, um I really don't even like to call it reparations because it's actually, I think, repayment of money that was taken. Um, I think also has to include discussion of the United States' role within the debt itself, but then also what the sort of massacres and the injustices that happened under the US occupation of Haiti for 19 long years, before Af- which before Afghanistan, which is the longest occupation in US history.
0: Marlena. I'm gonna ask you a question that even as I ask it, I realize is completely unfair and unreasonable in terms of its scope. But I am dying to know the answer because I've had students ask me this question and Mark and I have asked this question of ourselves in our work and have not been able to adequately give an answer. So the question is, Does race play an important role, any role? Is it important to talk about if one is trying to understand all of these things that happened, but let's just take a couple of things where it might be worth asking. So so does race play a role in this uh, bizarre debt where France imposes on a country that has become independent, a cost of becoming independent, uh, where France imposes the cost of uh, property on the people who were the property as opposed to paying it itself like other countries did. And that the US, I, I think he, I've seen that Woodrow Wilson himself thought that what the US was doing was probably illegal in taking over Haiti, uh, but they go ahead and do it. It is possible. and. I, I mean, I'm embarrassed that maybe our article does, doesn't talk about race very much at all. Um, it is possible to tell this story as just a story of injustice without touching upon race. But I can't help at the back of my mind think that ra- race and uh, you know whether or not you are considered a human being, if you are a former slave, is a crucial determinant of things like how much you have to pay an in indemnity. I'm so sorry, that was completely rambling, uh, but I, I, I wonder whether you, you just can't tell the story or you can tell the story without talking about race.
1: I mean, I think you definitely cannot tell the story without talking about race because the only reason that there was slavery on the island of Saint-Domingue was race, right? And I I think you know I've talked about before how um, people will say, well, when Napoleon tried to reinstate slavery on the island, when he wanted to reinstate slavery on the island and when he effectively did so, for example, on the French island of Guadeloupe um, in 1802, it wasn't about race, it was about commerce. But the thing to remember is that only the people who were categorized as being African or of African descent were subjected to this policy of of slavery. So it's absolutely about race. Anyone classified as white de facto was a a free person. Um, And when we place Haiti, Haiti's independence alongside, as Haitian writers constantly pointed out in the 19th century, US independence, we see only what could explain the differential treatment that the United States receives from its former colonizer, Great Britain, and the differential treatment that Haiti receives from its former colonizer, France. What could explain? Well, we could say, well, the French are just especially harsh colonizers, which in a certain sense we could, there's, there's lots of evidence for that. Uh, Saint-Domingue was a land of terror and torture. It's reputed for having some of the worst slave punishments in the entire Atlantic world. The death rate was exceedingly high. Uh, one French naturalist travel writer uh, named Étienne d'Albertoy, who was sent in the 1770s to go and kind of survey the island, came back home and wrote an account that today to us would seem extremely prejudicial. But he has parts where he says, "The way they treat the enslaved is so horrible that if they're born on the island, they won't live above 15 or 16 years, and if they're forcibly transported there from Africa, they won't live longer than two or three years." From that. Uh, statement, the book was censored and he was sentenced to death, even though in other parts of the book, he says, I agree with prejudice. It's the only way to keep the slave system going, the economy robust with the plantation economy that we have and the, the sugar exports and all of that. Um, and, and so that's just to say that if we, if we don't include race in the equation, then parts of the story start not to m- make any sense. Well, why did uh, Great Britain, um, give the United States such a comparatively easy time in terms of recognizing their independence because at the end of every war uh, at, at this time period in the 18th century, the 19th century, there are treaties. There are treaties named after various cities and the treaties would determine what territories are going to be exchanged and the, the terms of the surrender if one party surrendering or the ceasefire and what the, what those terms would be. And the United States has several of these with with Great Britain, Jay's treaty is one of them, we're gonna compensate you for some ships and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not where you must pay us 150 million francs, which of course is the compromise amount for on the part of the French, because the colonists are talking about 10 times that amount initially that they want to be compensated. And in fact, they complain when the indemnity comes down that this only covers the cost of one tenth of what they had actually quote unquote lost. That whenever race comes into the equation, things start to seem justified and normal that would seem outlandish and ridiculous in any other context. What would have happened if you know, 11 years after US independence, the war is over, Great Britain sends a delegation with gunboats and says, you need to pay us $150 million or pounds. And if you don't, you've yeah, got these guns pointed at you. We, it's hard to imagine in any other scenario, um, except that in the 19th century, the French not only imagined it, they put it into practice. And I will say that other nations at the time, they, I think expected that Haitians wouldn't necessarily pay that because the writers from Great Britain are saying this is such an absurd amount of, you know, if we had to pay this in England, we would, you know, we would have trouble paying this. So everyone knows and it's an absurd amount, which brings us back to the question of, again, why in the Haitian case, the the money was not just agreed to in the first instance, but then insisted upon in several iterations through these kind of draconian uh, uh, debts that end up being the method, the the way that Haitians can actually finish paying the debt, which by some estimates is paid by 1947. Some say it's still technically because of the repackaging of those debts, not fully paid at all.
2: So so this makes me want to ask a, a question that I think is related. So former colonial powers tend to develop Pretty hazy memories about uh, the depredations they engaged in um, in the, the course of their colonial rule. And, and I have to imagine that tendency is even greater when questions of race are involved. And so I wonder, I know, Marlene, that you've taught uh, in the US and, and in France and um, maybe at various levels. And I'm wondering what your sense is of how, I guess I'm especially interested in, in um, teaching in France, what your sense is of the kind of historical memory that uh, students inherit of this episode. Is there any, um, uh, is it, if there is, is it viewed as a sort of mark of shame? What, what do we, uh, do people remember this when clearly they should?
1: It's a great question. Um, In France, you know, I taught at a French lycée, but admittedly it was a while ago from 2002 to 2003. And my students knew nothing about, you know, French colonialism, French slavery. In fact, You know, one student said, oh, in the United States, I I visited the South and, you know, I noticed that there was a lot of poverty and that I saw a lot of poor Black people in the United States. And is that related to slavery? So in some ways, this is an astute question, you know, and says, is this related to slavery? And as I'm kind of explaining my answer, he says, well, you know, I I said you had slavery also in France, and so there's some of these dynamics also exist here. And he appeared to be completely shocked, had no idea what I'm talking about, because slavery is something that happened over there. And the United States has a particular race problem because of its history of slavery, whereas the French, in contrast with their theory of universalism or this ideology really of universalism, that we don't see race, that we're color neutral, um, that everyone is French first. that, that racism is then the problem of someplace else. And so if racism is the problem of other places, then maybe we don't actually need to teach uh, the history of slavery and colonialism. And now my understanding is this is changing now, but at, not at a kind of universal level in France that a lot of it depends on the instructor and how much of this history um, they want to teach. In terms of the indemnity, the awareness is almost zero um, among uh, the French populace in general. Um, and it's not really taught in, in schools at all. Um, I would say in the United States, my students, the indemnity in particular, are similarly shocked. They have never heard of it either. They wonder why they've never heard of it. And they also find it unbelievable to a great extent. Well,
0: thank you so much. This was one of the most fun podcasts we have done. <laughs> so we're so grateful.
1: Thank you for having you me.
0: Share, shared your time with
2: us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, me. Marlena.
1: Thank you.